ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. When we feel better, we do better. That simple message is what Feel Better with Tara Styles is all about. We share informative, inspiring, and healing conversations with respected leaders whose work embodies the action of making our world a better place. We also share simple practices based in meditation, tai chi, and gentle yoga that are a relief to breathe along with, whether you have time to stretch out on the ground or you're busy getting ready for your day. Settle in and enjoy learning something new that will surely support your well-being, inspire your creativity, and help you feel a whole lot better. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hey there, this is Jonathan Tepperman, Foreign Policy's Editor-at-Large, and you're listening to FP Playlist. Most weeks, as you know, our show recommends a podcast from somewhere else around the world. But this week, we decided to do something different. The Biden administration has been in place for a couple of weeks now, and has been moving fast as it can to staff up. If you've been listening to the news, you've heard a lot of names, some of them familiar, some of them new. Cabinet secretaries, agency chiefs, and a whole cadre of senior officials are now getting the call. Just who Biden picks for his top foreign policy jobs will reveal a huge amount about what we can expect from his administration's approach in the next few years. In fact, it's probably the best crystal ball we have at this point. And so I thought you'd enjoy hearing from FP's own State Department and Pentagon correspondents, Robbie Grammer and Jack Detch. Both of them are intimately sourced in Washington, having covered the Trump administration and now the incoming Biden team. They know who is who and they know what's what. Last week, Robbie and Jack spoke to FP's executive editor, Amelia Lester, on a conference call we held for FP subscribers. Their talk was so good, however, that I decided I wanted to share it with all of you. So here it is. One note before we start, though. During the conversation, you may hear Amelia taking questions from listeners. Remember, we're no longer live, so there's no way you can pose your own questions to Robbie and Jack but I think you'll find the conversation interesting. I sure did. And remember, we'll be back again to our regular format next week. Jack, wonder if we could start with you. Could you talk to me a little bit about the Pentagon and the State Department that Trump left in place? What are some of the challenges that Biden is going to be facing there? Well, Amelia, I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say he's really going to have to win back the confidence of the civil service in both the state and defense departments and really around government uh, in his first few days in office. You're, you're talking about uh, a civil service that has historically low morale. And if you were just to look at the text messages that Robbie and I were sending each other over the last year, I mean, it was just loyalty test after loyalty test of officials not seen as loyal to Trump canceling of key programs, uh, targeting of civil servants. So there's going to be some scar tissue there. Now, Biden's already taken a, a first step that I think will build some confidence, which is the repeal of Trump's Schedule F executive order, which would have turned career civil service billets into political billets and made those positions easier to fire. But long term, he's got to find some way to fix the rate of attrition in government with civil service people. Robbie, 
Where do we stand on the slate of appointments so far? How does it compare to similar times in past administrations? So I, in short, it's uh, they're, they're behind. They've got some catching up to do. Um, obviously, this can be traced back to the um, political dumpster fire that's, that has been the past few months in Washington with Trump refusing to accept the results culminating in the violence on, on the Capitol Hill on, on January 6th. Um, and at this point in administration, you'd expect um, all or most of the cabinet officials to be confirmed. Um, but the day that Biden came into office, he he only had one um, on the intelligence side. Um, that's the lowest number of cabinet officials confirmed uh, since George H.W. Bush. Wow. Um, as, as far as I understand. So so in, in a way, it's it's pretty unprecedented. Um, now, since then, uh, the the nominations have have hummed along and largely on a bipartisan basis. In fact, just a couple minutes before this this Zoom chat started, um, Anthony Blinken, uh, Biden's nomination for secretary of state was just confirmed in the Senate by a vote of 78 to 22. Um, the one of the wild cards here is how the Trump uh, post hoc impeachment trial is going to affect is going to affect things because it's going to hog up some uh, Senate uh, time that that would otherwise be used for confirmation. So we're we're expecting to see other cabinet appointees pretty swiftly confirmed if there are no major roadblocks in in the 50-50 Senate. Um, but beyond that, a, a lot of the other really important players in foreign policy that are below the level of cabinet secretary, the undersecretaries, the assistant secretaries, they're the ones that don't really make the headlines, but do all of the spade work on, on U.S. foreign policy day to day. Um, they could be delayed or pushed back depending on what happens, how this impeachment trial shakes out, and also these outstanding questions on how a 50-50 Senate would work that both the Democrats and Republicans are still trying to uh, work their way through. So let's talk a little bit about Antony Blinken. Uh, again, Biden's now now his secretary of state, right? We can say that now. Um, he's already faced the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, so we've heard a little bit about him. Can you tell us a little bit about what we learned about him and his priorities from those yeah. hearings? Blinken is unique in a lot of ways from past secretaries of state in that he has a two-decade-long relationship almost um, with, with the president himself, Biden. He um, he served as a staffer for then-Senator Biden. Um, he was on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee as a staffer. Um, and since then, he's sort of climbed through the ranks of, of, of power in Washington, um, culminating in time in the, in the White House under the Obama administration and as Deputy Secretary of State. So, so he's very much a known quantity. Um, I think early on, after it was clear that Biden won, um, there were some Republicans fearful that, that Biden would appoint more uh, people from the more progressive flank of the party. Um, to the senior foreign policy posts. Um, Blinken is perceived by many in Washington um, as more of a centrist um, than, a, than a progressive. Um, he also uh, made pretty clear what the foreign policy priorities would be in his confirmation hearings um, in a way that comforted some Republicans. Um, he uh, in, in a series of simple yes-no questions from Senator Lindsey Graham, um, obviously a a Republican and Trump ally. Um, he said, yes, we believe Iran is the largest state sponsor of terror, um, uh, though he still opened the door to uh, renegotiating the Iran deal. Um, and he also said he supported uh, outgoing Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's last minute designation of what chi of China's crackdown in uh, 
against its Muslim minorities in Western China as, as a genocide um, in Xinjiang. Um, so, so, there's, so there's a lot of these areas where, um, despite, again, all the hyper-partisanship, uh, there is common ground in foreign policy, and Blinken seemed to reflect that. Yeah, more continuity than we might have expected. Yeah. Uh, Jack, let's move to Lloyd Austin, who is Biden's nominee for Defence Secretary. Tell us a little bit about what we've learned about him from his time in front of the Senate Armed Services Committee. Well, Amelia, to be honest, we didn't learn a lot about Lloyd Austin at his confirmation hearing. He seemed sort of reluctant to get out in front of the rest of the administration. And he flatly stated he was going to spend a lot of time looking at the classified briefings and doing review of his policy positions. So I didn't get to uh, put a bingo on my bingo board, actually, until uh, an hour and a half into that hearing, I'm sad to say. Um, But here's what I think we do know just from his career and his relationship with Biden. Again, as Robbie said with Blinken, I I think that's really the key here. He was seen as a a go with the flow type of person during the Obama administration. Um, When he was tasked with the drawdown of U.S. troops in Iraq in 2011, he didn't really get a lot of clarity of of what the U.S. position was going to be. There was some confusion about whether U.S. troops would stay. And his colleagues saw him as as a steady hand who didn't panic and and did his job methodically. And of course, he's somebody who had a relationship with Bo Biden, uh, Joe's son, while he was still alive. So, um, you know, you're looking at somebody who has a good relationship with the president, uh, who's going to be surrounded by Asia hawks and pro-modernization folks in DOD, Uh, and seems intent, at least in his first few days, of repealing some key Trump defense personnel policies. So we've already seen the transgender ban repeal, and he's going to get to work quickly on military sexual assault, which has plagued the force for years. And can you just tell us a little bit about his background? Sure. He was, um, of course, commander of U.S. forces in Iraq uh, during the Obama administration, and uh, then became the head of U.S. Central Command, uh, actually succeeding uh, defense former defense secretary Jim Mattis. So uh, he's somebody with extensive background in the Middle East, and and the questions that have been raised about him uh, from folks in Washington on the outside is whether he's briefed up enough in the Asia portfolio, uh, which is going to be a key focus for the Defense Department. And I saw mixed opinions about this when reading about it. How big a deal is it that he has a military background and is not a civilian? Well, Amelia, I think it's it's it was a key problem that was raised early. And it's something that you, Democrats had an issue with, certainly, because the you, two of the, out of the last three confirmed defense secretaries now are people who have not been out of the military for the legally required seven years. So Austin needed a waiver, which he got uh, by a good margin and actually got an even better margin for confirmation. So I think actually what we're looking at now is potentially that waiver requirement now not being as much of an issue in the future and perhaps, you know, looking at future military folks now uh, with a a better shot at becoming defense secretary than we saw in the past. Ravi, let's move to intelligence. Uh, We have Avril Haines, who is the director of national intelligence and the first of Biden's nominees to actually be confirmed. And Bill Burns, who's Biden's pick for the CIA. What are we expecting from those two? Yeah, well, um, Haynes, as as you mentioned, was already confirmed. Um, and Bill Burns, his nominee, um, was sort of a, a surprise candidate for um, all of these inside the Beltway horse race conversations about who will get what job. Um, Burns is a is an experienced uh, former Foreign Service officer, um, and at the time of his retirement, the most senior 
uh, foreign service officer. He, so he's a highly respected former diplomat. Um, he had experience as ambassador to Russia, um, as the top envoy for the Middle East, um, and is a uh, uh, seen as, as one of those, uh, I guess, old school, um, you know, soft-spoken uh, uh, diplomats. And, and he, he got a lot of praise from uh, former intelligence officials when his nomination came about. Um, I think Jack touched on this on your first question, um, but there's a lot of institutional damage that the Biden team has pledged to repair once they've, they've come in um, to the Pentagon and the State Department. Um, we'll see if they make good on that promise, um, but that also applies to the intelligence community. The, the relations between the intelligence community and uh, the Trump administration were pretty badly damaged in the course of uh, impeachment trial number one, which of course started with a whistleblower from the intelligence community um, alleging uh, late or leveling allegations against Trump. Um, but also in the final months of the administration where some of the president's more fringe supporters accused the uh, CIA um, and other intelligence agencies of, of, I guess, being in cahoots with some of these baseless claims of election fraud, um, emphasis on baseless claims. Uh, but at the same time, the fact that the president and his allies didn't immediately denounce them, um, the fact that Gina Haspel, the outgoing CIA director, at one point in the final weeks threatened to resign just shows how tense that relationship has gotten. Um, I think one of the big things that lawmakers are looking for from both Haynes and uh, Burns is an unclassified report on uh, the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi at the hands of Saudi government operatives um, that, that really galvanized U.S. and international public opinion against the Saudi U.S.-Saudi relationship back in 2018. Um, Trump really uh, didn't do much on that front. Um, and a lot of senators on both sides of the aisle are hankering on that. I know the progressive wing of, of the Democratic Party, based on conversations that we've had with their experts and uh, congressional staffers for some uh, progressive members, um, they're really looking to see what the administration will clarify on some of America's so-called forever wars um, and uh, drone strikes that the United States is carrying out in places like you know, Syria, um, but as well uh, Somalia um, and elsewhere, and whether those will continue under the uh, new regime, so to speak. We'll be right. Hey, my name is Coleman Hughes, and I'm the host of the podcast Conversations with Coleman. I think that the country is in flames already. We are headed toward the end of the American project. The ability to think and speak freely is what moves society forward, where I have honest, unfiltered conversations about the most pressing issues of our time. Our world is becoming more polarized. Partisan hatred has infected every sphere of life. You can be canceled for having opinions that depart from the consensus of a few social media. Join me every week on Conversations with Coleman as I challenge convention, question everything, and Seek the truth with an open mind. Back. Jack, I've gotten a lot of questions on, on this um, issue that we've already touched on a little bit about the growing use of waivers and, and flexibility of the military requirement for Secretary of Defense. For, for instance, Helen Yu writes, does it set a dangerous precedent, as some critics have commented, or is it not even a problem? So, of course, it, it depends on, on who you talk to, right? I think the interesting thing that we saw in the Austin confirmation was uh, the, waiver, the waiver vote was about, I think, um, 75 pro, and then you had 93 yeses and, and two noes on the confirmation vote. So 
it seemed like there was there's more of a protest on the waiver as opposed to his qualifications. But ongoing, yes, I, I mean, I think this is a, a huge thing that, that we're going to be thinking about. Now that you've had two out of three defense secretaries be confirmed, um, despite not being out of the military for seven years, uh, it doesn't seem like the waiver is going to be any obstacle um, to folks who were formerly in the military getting that type of job. So you have to wonder if that, that law is coming back, uh, if that precedent really matters. And then, I mean, the civil, civil military folks I talked to uh, are just concerned that this introduces potentially a degree of partisanship uh, into the military because you have folks who were formerly in the military. Uh, you know, this is the only real job that that Austin has had. You know, I mean, he doesn't really have a, a career to speak of outside of the military. His his post career in terms of writing or, or intellectual content. So you you do have to wonder just is that introducing a level of partisanship where now folks who are inside the military at senior ranks. Uh, might be might be angling for jobs in another administration. I think that's the real fear here. We'll take some more questions in just a moment, but I just wanted to broaden out the conversation a little and ask you both, starting with you, Robbie, what are some of the other appointments that you're watching that that you think are going to have a big impact on foreign policy? Yeah, um, and uh, that that's a great question. Um, some some of these, in fact, a lot of these um, posts, they don't have names yet. I would expect, um, given how the Biden administration has has hit the ground running in, in the past few weeks that that will have names for nominees in, in the next couple of weeks. Um, a few we're watching, um, definitely the U.S. ambassador to Israel. Um, that's a very uh, fine tightrope that that Biden will be walking after Trump left office. Um, Biden has and and Blinken have signaled support for um, some of these these uh, diplomatic breakthroughs that that the Trump administration secured in the final months of the administration with um, Arab countries recognizing Israel. We're talking about Morocco, Sudan, uh, the UAE, Bahrain, um, but and more importantly, Biden has not. Uh, uh, indicated that he would move the U.S. Embassy in Israel back from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv. Um, and so it's, it sounds like at this point that the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem is, is here to stay. Um, but at the same time, I think you're going to start seeing signals for, um, re, uh, I guess, a return to the status quo of supporting the two-state solution. Um, I would expect if it hasn't already been announced that that the Biden team will um, will announce uh, they'll they'll approve reopening of the Palestinian Authority's offices here in the United States that that Trump shuttered. I expect you'd see um, USAID or U.S. development and foreign aid going back into places like the West Bank and Gaza soon. Um, but but uh, the Trump's ambassador to Israel played a played a really outsized role in in crafting that the U.S. Israeli relationship that was so important to the Trump administration. So it'll be interesting to see who who Biden picks. Um, I've sort of gone on a, a lot on that, but just a few other uh, picks we're looking at is the. Assistant Secretary of State for uh, East Asia Pacific. Um, whoever that, whoever gets that job, will play a big role in how Biden charts his China policy, um, as well as North Korea. Um, another one we are watching pretty closely, actually, is the Under Secretary of the Treasury for um, uh, Terrorism and Financial Intelligence. They'll be overseeing um, the U.S. sanctions regime, um, and particularly in the past. For years, the past decade, sanctions have become sort of a go-to foreign policy weapon of choice um, for bad actors all over the world, um, from uh, terrorist networks to Russia, China, North Korea. 
um, and then the uh, Undersecretary of State for Arms Control and International Security. Um, they'll be in charge of of uh, determining where we go next on uh, these really important nuclear treaties with Russia. Um, the Biden administration has already signaled it's, it wants to rejoin New START with Russia, um, overseeing US strategic nuclear weapons. Um, but there's also other deals that um, have either been scrapped by Trump or seem to be in the wind that, that will be interesting to watch where, where his team takes from that. And Jack, how about you? What are you watching? So this is this is going to sound really wonky and nerdy. So forgive my my defense wonkiness. But one thing that I think I'm going to be watching closely is who becomes the undersecretary of defense for acquisition and sustainment, because that's the person who has to deal with the frontline consequences of the U.S. now sanctioning Turkey um, for getting delivery of the Russian uh, air defense system, the S-400. So uh, the real questions there for me of how do you chart, uh, you know, a future course with that NATO ally in particular? Uh, and I'm also going to be looking at the Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, uh, who's has a key role in, in analyzing U.S. civilian casualties policy, uh, since we already know that the Biden administration would really like to get that war in Yemen to an end. Great question from Ron Osamas. Um, let's have you, Jack, handle this one. He asks, has President Biden taken any immediate steps so far that signal just how assertive his administration will be in dealing with Russia and Putin? Yeah, well, the big one has been re-entering uh, the New START treaty with Russia, which um, the negotiations were flagging on that. So I think we're going to see an administration uh, that is just more interested in a conventional arms control approach, just limiting uh, the different elements of the nuclear triad. Um, I think what we could also see potentially um, late in the year, uh, the Trump administration was looking at further curbing the U.S. diplomatic presence in Russia, of course, Robbie had done some great reporting on that and can speak to that with more expertise than I can. Um, but there may be some re-engagement there, and there's been a push from Capitol Hill to potentially roll back uh, some of those things. And, and certainly, uh, just with what's going on with, with Alexei Navalny and uh, the protests that we saw across Russia over the weekend, um, you know, there's, there's going to be growing animus and sort of a desire to potentially push back on Putin uh, and his inner circle now with uh, the revelations we've seen about corruption there. Robbie, do yeah. you want to chime in? Yeah, I mean, uh, two two points there. Um, Biden ha uh, Biden has said, um, even with the extension of the new start, um, he wouldn't rule out any additional sanctions on Russian officials for um, the crackdown on opposition um, and the jailing of Alexei Navalny, who, of course, is the most prominent uh, Russian opposition figure to Putin and recently returned to Russia after um, hospitalization in Germany for for being poisoned. Um, the other thing is, um, you know, as, as the old adage goes, personnel is policy. Um, and so I think in, in some of these appointments that that you're already seeing or nominees that you're already seeing Biden put out, um, um, it's it's a it's going to be the more of the same with Russia, a, a similar level of, of hawkishness and, and confrontational relationship. I think the best example there is Victoria Newland, who's um, Biden's um, nominee to be the Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs. That's the State Department's number three job. Um, she was a former Europe Eurasia envoy under Obama. And it's fair to say that there is no love lost between her and the Kremlin. Um, she was very, very hawkish toward Russia, particularly in the wake of its illegal annexation and invasion of Ukraine. Um, illegal annexation of Crimea and invasion of Ukraine um, galvanized a lot of, of European support uh, against the Russians on that. Um, and so 
if if it boils down to that, I, I think we're going to see a lot more of the same. And and the last thing I'll note is um, Russia policy under the Trump administration was kind of weird to cover because while the president himself, um, you know, sent some warm overtures to Putin, um, was skeptical of of all of the hawkishness toward Russia. The his administration actually doubled down on a lot of uh, Obama and even Bush era policies of of standing up to to Russia on confronting Russian uh, aggression with deterrence, um, reinvesting in NATO, cracking down on some of these pipeline projects, Russia's trying to, to get into Europe to bypass Ukraine, um, a whole raft of sanctions against Putin's inner circle, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, so in, in a way, it's even, even though the President Trump and Putin had a unique relationship, you're going to see a lot of continuity between the Trump administration, separate from Trump, and the Biden administration on Russian policy. One final regional question for now. Uh, Swen Howard has um, written about China. Love to hear insight on expected Biden administration direction towards China. And specifically was wondering about their continued expansion of military dominance initiatives. Maybe, Jack, you can speak to that. So I, I think we're kind of in an interesting limbo, right? Because uh, what I've heard uh, about the Biden administration's plans is that they want to go hard and fast on something like a strategic review that might be akin to a national security strategy that will certainly give us kind of a direction and a North Star with regards to China. What I think we will see uh, is an interest in continuing uh, the relationships inside the Pacific Islands that the Trump administration was trying to set up. but. Again, we're looking at kind of a limbo period because this administration is not going to travel uh, for some time, not not on the extensive level that we saw the Trump administration doing at the end, uh, just because of COVID concerns. So uh, we may be looking at sort of a, a much more ramped up post-vaccine China foreign policy than we see before that point. An intriguing question from George Kroll that I can't resist asking to both of you, curious for both of your thoughts. It seems like we're hearing from people that that we've heard from before. There's there's a, there's a sense of continuity. People coming back to positions or to institutions that they previously were affiliated with. George Kroll asks, "Do you think these new slash old policymakers will deal with international relations differently than they did the last time they were in power to reflect perhaps changes in world power dynamics and relative U.S. influence in the world?" Who wants to take that one first? I mean, I, I think. Everything that's going on in this administration, right, is going on in the shadow of the, the January 6th Capitol attack. Uh, and every foreign diplomat or foreign official I talk to, the first thing that they say that comes out of their mouth uh, is we're sorry about the instability that's that's going on in your country. Uh, and that's a that is a total shock uh, for for my lifetime. We've, we've never been in that position. Um, and so I, I think just going forward. Biden's going to have to find a way to mitigate the challenge of China, which can take this moment now uh, where U.S. power around the world, while people are, are happy to see turnover, they're happy to see change. Um, they're really worried that uh, U.S. power is wounded uh, and that the political divides that we see in our country are, are going to limit uh, the U.S. in terms of its foreign policy. Yeah, and on onto that, I'd add, you know, it's funny in talking to a lot of people who advised the Biden campaign and the transition, um, you know, they they were saying, you know, this is not a this is not Obama 2.0. This is, um, you know, this is going to be a new administration. It's a new era. Um, and yet at the same time, uh, there's a lot of like like you pointed out, there's a lot of familiar faces here. And if it's not Obama 2.0, uh, based on who's staffing up, it certainly looks like Obama 2.0. 
Um, I think some of the big differences here are, as Jack said, the, the domestic front, it's just a totally different ball game. Um, uh, given the hyper-partisanship, which a lot of national security experts uh, describe as the biggest national security threat to the, to the United States up there with China. Um, I think there's a lot more motivation to end the so-called forever wars um, that past three or two or three presidents have, have promised to end, but, but haven't yet. Um, and so you're, you're going to see different policy shifts, but, but at the same time, it's, uh, it, it, is, it does look like it's going to be policy shifts carried out by all these familiar faces from the Obama administration. Feels like it's a good time to to shift to talking about some of those specific tangible policies that we might expect the Biden administration to roll out. Robbie, what are some of the most immediate foreshore things that we that we're going to see happening? Yeah, um, so I, we were uh, we were talking about this a bit before the event, um, and this is sort of. Uh, opening up the reporter's notebook here. This is what Jack and I and some other reporters on the FP team are, are watching in the next couple weeks and months to see. Um, I think it's you can divide them into you know what's what's definitely going to happen, what's what might happen, and then some uh, wish lists from uh, from certain wings of the Democratic Party that may or may not happen. Uh, what's definitely going to happen? Some already has. Um, Biden has rejoined the World Health Organization. He's rejoined the Paris Climate Agreements. Um, he's he's decided to re-extend uh, New START, which I mentioned before, that key uh, arms control treaty um, with Russia um, by a five-year extension. Um, some of the likelies, I think we're going to see um, uh, U.S. cut off uh, support or military support for the Saudi-led coalition in the war in Yemen. Um, the war in Yemen is currently the uh, world's worst humanitarian crisis with some 24 million people on the brink of starvation. Um, and it became this really um, interesting battle in Washington between an unusual coalition of both conservative Republicans and really progressive Democrats trying to uh, push the Trump administration to curb U.S. military support for the Saudis there. I, I think we're going to see that, that support cut off. Um, Biden has pledged to rethink the U.S.-Saudi relationship, totally reevaluate it um, um, because of its, its record on human rights because of Jamal Khashoggi's murder um, and, and other misgivings about the direction of Saudi Arabia under the new Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Um, and uh, that sh that might run into some geopolitical realities just because of how important Saudi Arabia is for the U.S. force posture and power projection in the Middle East. Um, there's also some some uh, I guess sort of a wish list that from progressive foreign policy experts and lawmakers, I, I think they'd like to see the the Biden administration rethink the U.S. Uh, Egypt relationship and cut. Um, uh, a lot of military funding for the for the. Uh, uh, regime in Egypt. Um, there's there's also a lot of human rights groups pushing for a genocide declaration on Myanmar um, with what's going on with the Rohingyas. Um, and uh, I think I, Jack can speak better to this, but I think there's going to be a lot of pressure from the progressive side to start to roll back the, uh, the massive defense budget. Um, um, and how that plays out um, is remains to be seen. Jack, do you want to chime in? Yeah, I, I think the defense budget is, is a particular thing. And, and also just to add on to what Robbie was saying, um, you have the, the Trump administration in their final days took down the U.S. presence in both Iraq and Afghanistan to 2,500 troops apiece. Um, so the question is for Biden, uh, how is he going to deal with the, neg the negotiations with the Taliban in Doha, Qatar? 
Uh, it seems like he's keeping on uh, Zalmay Kalilzad, who was uh, Trump's envoy there. So we're going to have a little bit of continuity. It seems like they're going to try and talk to the Taliban for now. Um, but yeah, I think there's just going to be a long-term question and a push from the progressive side not to overly echo what Robbie said, but just what's going on with the fate of those wars and, and some real urgency to get out of there. Yeah. We say the best till last in what we hope will become a signature question for these chats. I want to ask you both what else you have jotted down in your reporter's notebooks that you can share with our audience. Jack, let's start with you. Well, Amelia, as I told you this week, the reporter's notebook in the pandemic for me is just now a series of reporter's <laughs> sticky notes that are um, all pasted across my my laptop and I have to take them off every morning. But the key thing, I think, just links to what Robbie just said, right? Um, you had sort of a a string of hardline Trump policies coming in into the end, basically maximum pressure in a, against Iran until the end, uh, the sanctions and terror pressure against Cuba. My question is for the for the Biden administration coming in, and I've heard this question bandied about in Washington, um, how much are the Biden folks going to use that leverage from that pressure that Trump has instilled uh, to try and get better deals when it comes to Iran? Venezuela and Cuba versus just folding immediately. So that's something the new administration is really going to have to think about. And Robbie, what's in your notebook or on your posters? Yeah, I, I won't go through. I have like seven notebooks that just have a bunch <laughs> of random scrawls that look like a, a madman wrote them. I, I'll save you all the, the pain of, of going through those. But I wanted to bring up three finite and really different things. Uh, number one, the Sahel. Um, there's a really... Uh, scary growing terrorism threat in West Africa um, that the Trump administration was was trying to in, engage with with the French with uh, with regional partners there um, and it it seems to have failed so so is the Sahel going to become the new the new Syria the new Afghanistan sort of the, the breeding ground of the next generation of of durable terrorism organizations um, I think that's that's chronically under undercovered, um, underappreciated as as a one of those wicked national security problems. Uh, number two, um, Kamala Harris. What will her what will her role be in U.S. foreign policy? Um, she obviously has a lot of experience on the domestic side, on the legal side, um, but traditionally, vice presidents have have taken on a few finite roles, pet projects here and there. Um, Biden was big on on Europe, on Ukraine um, when he was vice president under Obama. Um, Pence under Trump um, um, seemed to carry the mantle a lot on the, the administration's push for global religious freedom. Um, and Harris, I, I haven't tracked that much, um, but she has brought in a, a pretty seasoned and well-respected former diplomat, Nancy Mickledowney, as her national security advisor, so that'll be interesting. And then the final point um, before I uh, before I stop, um, is, is Trump himself. I think just sort of as a country, we've taken for granted that once presidents lose, they they fade into the background. You know, Bush did this for Obama. Obama did this for Trump, and they and they say, okay, the new president's going to do his thing. You know, the American electorate has spoken. Um, I think if, if the past few months have shown us anything, it's that Trump's not going to do that. Um, he just announced, I think, in the past day or two, the the opening of the quote unquote office of the former president. Um, and and one of the mandates for that office, whatever it is, is to continue to advance. Trump's Make America Great Agenda. Um, and so I'm I'm not really sure what role he'll play, if it's a spoiler role at all, if he'll play, if he'll, you know, try to do foreign trips, if any of his business dealings from, from the Trump organization might interfere in any way with US foreign policy. But I think that's something that we're definitely going to keep an eye on um, as, as the new administration comes in. 
that's all we've got time for today. But thank you so much, Robbie and Jack, for sharing your insider take. And there's so many insights that that you've been share with our audience today. I know we're all eager to see how the new administration's priorities take shape. And we're looking forward to doing this again soon and hearing your reporting and your scoops on these issues. And of course, a big thanks to everyone in our audience for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this insider look. And of course, we encourage you to stay tuned to FP's coverage and expert analysis. You can subscribe to FP and you can sign up for our security brief newsletter at foreignpolicy.com slash newsletters. That's written by Robbie and Jack and you get insights like all the ones discussed today delivered straight to your inbox. Thanks again. Take care. See you soon. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>